All right. We have a great episode of Side Retired, the MLB podcast coming at you guys today. We're going to have a lot of Mets talk on today's episode as we're joined by Newsday's Tim Healy. So Matt, let's hit the intro music and we'll get right into this. Hello and welcome to today's edition of Side Retired, the MLB podcast. It's Dylan Campione, joined alongside Matt Potter as always. And Matt, before we introduce our guest, how you doing? Doing pretty well. Good good weekend for my teams. ND win, Giants win. So <laughs> I'm, I'm in a pretty good mood. A very rare New York Giants win. But of course, we're here to talk today about another New York sports team, and that is the New York Mets. And we're joined by Newsday's New York Mets beat reporter Tim Healy has been with Newsday for a couple seasons now covering the New York Mets, the ups and the downs of the organization. But Tim, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So we're here today. We're going to talk a lot about what it's like to be a beat reporter, obviously covering a team in New York, as well as um, talking some Mets baseball. I know they've got an interesting offseason upcoming and Matt and I as huge Mets fans. Can't wait to see what David Stearns and crew has in store for the team. But I guess the first question we wanted to ask you was, what is it like covering the New York Mets? Obviously, there's a lot of things that come <laughs> with it, both good and bad, but you're around the team, the organization, and City Field almost more than anybody else has ever experienced. The, the way that I put it is that they always keep it interesting. <laughs> and so covering the Mets, therefore, is always interesting. Sometimes it's in a good way. Sometimes it's in a bad way. Sometimes it's on the field, sometimes it's off the field, but one way or another, there is going to be stuff going on with the Mets. There's going to be stuff to write about and report on when you're on the Mets beat. So that's what it's like to cover the Mets. Some days it's a circus. Some days it's a normal baseball environment. Love those days. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's a good time. Absolutely. And as you said, you know, on the field, off the field, every, I guess every team every year, has its own characteristics, its own fun, its own antics. Um, I know that you were previously with the Marlins, you know, a, a divisional rival. Does does the job change much going from, you know, down in Miami, you know, up into to the New York market? Obviously, they're very different markets in terms of baseball popularity and things like that. But if it doesn't, how does it change? The biggest change, so I cover the, the Marlins front end. 2016 through early, you know, like spring training 2018, which was a very eventful year and a half. Then I got to the Mets. And what I learned was that the Jeffrey Loria Marlins were a lot like the Wilpon Mets in that they're dysfunctional and there's a level of ownership meddling that is just not healthy for baseball teams. So covering the Marlins, which as you said, is in a, terrible baseball market, a pretty mediocre sports market, if I'm being honest, prepared me in a less bright lights way for what it was like to cover the Mets. Cause that, that thing about, they always keep it interesting. That was true for the Marlins too. And then of course I learned that it's very true for the Mets. Um, but the biggest change is that people care in Miami. They, they don't largely, uh, you know, shout out to the Marlins fans who do exist because they're awesome. But I, I'll never forget the day that I announced on Twitter that I was leaving the Marlins beat and joining the Mets beat for Newsday. I picked up more followers that night 
<laughs> than I did in a year and a half covering the Marlin. And I was like, whoa, this is an entirely different beast. And then on top of that, I worked for Newsday, which is the newspaper on Long Island, a very Met-centric part of the tri-state area, which is awesome. I love writing for people's local newspaper um, because it matters to them. Newsday matters and the Mets matter, and it's a really good spot to be. Absolutely. And I think one of the fun things about being a reporter, as you just mentioned, you get to see behind the organization. You also get to meet a lot of the people that are involved with it. And the Mets more than ever, and I think you've been with the covering the team for now six, seven years or so, five years. And you'd think that's not that long of a time, but at the same time, I think you've experienced five managers, nine GM, yeah. two ownerships and all these different transitions. So what is that like? Because I can't imagine that's easy on your job that you think you finally mastered a relationship and next thing you know, everyone's gone. That you just were talking about. It's honestly, it's bizarre. It's crazy. It's It's been six seasons, but in Mets years, it's like 30 years. Because as you said, the, the rate of turnover has been absurd with GMs and managers, even ownership level. And then never mind all the in-between levels, like other front office executives like that. So as a reporter, you get, you're new to the beat, you introduce yourself, you want to do good work and you want to develop good relationships with the people you're covering. And then they're gone. And it's like, okay, I guess I will. I, I, actually, the, the first time the GM and manager turned over, I thought, okay, that's good because I'm not the brand new guy anymore. I'm just one of the beat reporters. And so that, you know, GM and front office turns over and I, you know, I do the same thing, meet all these people, you know, start to build relationships, develop sources, things like that. Two years go by, one of which is the pandemic year, which like didn't count for anything really. And then it happens again and the front office turns over again. So it's been, you know, it's been like, you know, five managers in six seasons now and pretty much the same for, for the GMs. Um, so it's been, it's a constant whirlwind. Uh, the, the Mets seem to think that this combination of David Stearns and Carlos Mendoza will be the stabilizing duo. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like they have as good a shot as anybody the Mets have had at being that stabilizing duo. But, you know, let's see how things look in two years. Absolutely. And then, you know, you, you were talking about how there's been so much turnover. And again, like you're mentioning, Carlos Mendoza's coming in and, you know, hopefully making his mark on the ball club. But yeah, there's obviously the the famous story in 2019 when you and Mickey Callaway had a little bit of a run in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now that, you know another new manager, another new season. How do you develop a relationship with a manager as a beat reporter, so that you can have you know this good flow of information? You can write what you need to write about. They can feel like they're being respected because obviously sure. you know something happened in that situation where there was just high intensity, high emotion. So how do you kind yeah. of strong enough relationships so things like that don't happen? Uh, just a be being there a lot helps. That's a big part of beat reporting and getting people to trust you. Because if you're just a random person, a stranger who drops in, as I do when I want to go ask a player or somebody on another team, I'm, they, they don't know me. I'm just some guy. They might not be as honest with you as the people you cover all the time and who know you and who can trust you. Um, you know, I, I always tell people that like Newsday is tabloid shaped, like just like the, the New York Post and the Daily News is literally a tabloid, but we don't have the same tabloidy vibe. So I don't face pressure to dramatize things or dig up dirt or, or kind of those stereotypical tabloid 
activities. Um, I get to write about what's going on. I get to write about what I think is interesting and newsworthy and what people should know about. So I, my job is, uh, my job is really good in that way. Uh, as far as building a relationship with the manager and others, it's just, it's just a matter of them getting to know you. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, knowing that you, one you know baseball and two when you're asking questions it's not because it's not always because you're criticizing them it's because they're the subject they're the expert i'm just the writer i know more than fans because that's my job but i don't know as much as the people in baseball the manager the players etc so that that's why i'm asking is out of curiosity and not judgment so it's um sometimes it's easy to get across and sometimes it's not and Sometimes when teams are losing a lot and things are not going well, tensions do rise and, and occasionally boil over. Um, but more often than not, it's just about, you know, keeping your cool and, uh, you know, staying professional. Absolutely. And I think one of the things to juxtapose that with is even though 2023, it seemed like the wheels did come off the rails a little bit at the end, but I don't think it ever, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think the clubhouse ever got as crazy. I think one of the key things is that Buck Schalter is that veteran presence. He was always yeah. around. So what do you think happened, I guess, with the 2023 Mets? And I know Matt and I have been trying to put our finger on it. I guess I think our conclusion right now is that there wasn't one thing, although as soon as Edwin Diaz got hurt in March, I think we realized, oh, shoot, something's wrong this year. <laughs> but, um, what happened with the 2023 New York Mets? I agree with you guys that it was no one thing. Edwin Diaz's injury and absence obviously was a big deal, but I say that if one injury derails you and that guy pitches one inning at a time, then you weren't that good to begin with. So I have trouble attributing it or blaming it on the Diaz's injury or the WBC or whatever. I look at it as in 2022, everything went well for the Mets. Everything was basically perfect. Aside from DeGrom's injury when he missed half the season, two-thirds of the season, and they did great without him. Everything was perfect. Great years for everybody. A remarkably healthy position player group, career years, et cetera. So they won 101 games. Were they were they really that good? Probably not. They were probably more like a low 90s win team. And they way overshot. In 2023, the opposite happened. They were probably a high 80s, low 90s win team. And stuff went wrong. They were the oldest team in baseball and their injuries showed it. Scherzer, Verlander, um, you know, McNeil dealt with some stuff through the, you know, Pete Alonso was on the IL for a bit. Starling Marte was basically nothing after he had been an all-star that first, their first year with the Mets. So if you balance out the two Buck Showalter years, 22 and 23, you get, you know, on average, which is not how it works, of course, but on average, they were in the wild card discussion. Just has so happens that they took two really extreme approaches to get there. Absolutely. You know, inj injury management, I guess, is as has always been, it seems to be sort of a, a Mets thing, whether it's big injuries or just little injuries. Mm -hmm. um, I, guess it's, I guess more than just the Mets, it's, it's, it's the game in general. Um, and, and as Dylan pointed out to the Diaz injury, I'm, I'm kind of curious you know, the Mets decided, okay, the end, you know, in September, even if he's ready to go, we're not going to put him in. Um, the season was over at that point. 
Yeah. You know, to fans, it's like, oh, that kind of sucks. Like, you know, it would be great to go hear the trumpets at City Field well, at least one time. But do you, like, in your mind, was that the right decision because the season was over? Or do you think it's going to set him back coming back in, in the beginning of next year? I think it was the right decision because he just, he wasn't there. You know, he had been throwing bullpen sessions, but ideally he would have been able to graduate from bullpen sessions to facing batters to a minor league rehab assignment, several minor league rehab appearances, and then eventually get into a game. And he just didn't have time. You know, we they the Mets said at the beginning that this injury would take usually uh, – March to November, eight months. And there were best case scenarios of six. So mid to late September was always a long shot. Always, always, always not likely. Uh, uh, It will add a degree of intrigue come March and April when Diaz gets to his first exhibition game, gets first back into his first real game. It'll, It'll add a little something to those because he didn't do it last year. So there's a degree of unknown, but with how much time he'll have to have recovered, he'll be, I don't want to say normal, but sounds like really close to it. Absolutely. And I think some of the fun stories as well that um, we know covering baseball, obviously your phone's going to be buzzing 24 seven and especially <laughs> off season time, but there's three days in Mets, I guess, lore or sort of in the yeah. time we covered the team that. Matt and I have always been interested in picking people's brains that are more in the know than us and that you probably had source information coming from left and right and up and right and down all these sort of different directions, giving you different insights and probably pushing what they want the media to know. But those three days in our head are when Scherzer decided to come to the Mets. I think that was right before the lockdown. And that was probably an interesting 24, 48 hours. Last offseason, when Jake left and Verlander came in, that yeah. like a 48 hour window of craziness. And then the other one, which seems like a positive that we avoided it, but the 24 hours of Trevor Bauer, where he was a Met oh, yeah. Dodger. And all of a sudden he was a Met and his merchandise was up and then he was a Dodger. So I <sighs> guess three examples, if there's one that stands out or if you want to touch on all three or any in between, but what were those three crazy 24, 48 hour window periods like? The one that is most memorable to me is the DeGrom one followed by of course by Scherzer but you know he moved so silently and quickly in his free agency DeGrom did and I I thought he was good as gone I did not think he was the Mets Mets were going to bring him back I did not think he wanted to come back and ultimately I think both sides made the right decision but it so it was a Friday night in early December right before the GM meetings and I took a risk that night uh, getting dinner with a couple of friends, which in the off season is always, always a little bit of a, a danger because when I'm on the clock, even, you know, if nothing's happening that day, I might not have to, have to do that much work, but if something does happen. I have to leap into action. So I, I, fortunately we were kind of near the end of dinner and the two friends I was with know my job and get it. They're two of my best friends. And so when the Grom signed with the Rangers, I was like, guys, I have to bail right now and go write about Jacob DeGrom. And I went like to my buddy's place and used his computer and banged out a story for the first edition of the newspaper, which was great. Uh, but I'll never forget walking maybe 10 blocks back. I was on the Upper East Side near their place. And 
we overheard three conversations in a very short amount of time about DeGrom and the Mets and him signing for the Rangers. I thought people, I never hear people on the streets of Manhattan talking about baseball or the Mets or whatever, but it was like, it was literally the talk of the town. It was wild. Um, so that was honestly kind of a lot of fun. It was a pretty electric moment as far as new offseason news goes, even though it was devastating for Mets fans who did want DeGrom to come back. Um, and then, of course, a couple of days later, Verlander signs, which was sort of surreal because the year before they signed Scherzer. And that was crazy because the Mets had the Mets were not the kind of team before Steve Cohen or even in the first year of Steve Cohen that would pull in that brand name free agents like literally Max Scherzer, one of the best to ever do it. Future Hall of Famer, top 30 pitcher of his generation. He's on the Mets now. That's that's wild. And then that they did it again the next year with Justin Verlander was like, holy crap! It was it wasn't as big of a surprise, but it was it was, it was a still a big deal that wow they're not then we not only did this again hire signed another elite pitcher, but they put Verlander and Scherzer back together just like in their Giants uh, Tigers days. And what I loved about it was that I had anticipated the possibility of that happening. And over the course of the months prior, had talked to people who knew them on the Tigers about how they didn't like each other. So when, when that happened, I had all these quotes and all this reporting and on the record stuff from a bunch of Tigers people about how they did not get along. And within a couple hours of signing, I had written that story in it. Uh, you know, a lot of people read it, which is always satisfying, things like that. Um, so that was th- that was definitely a very memorable couple of couple of days last last winter. And then and then we lost all of them. But that's 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 yeah. not <laughs> yeah. And, and now they're not Mets at all anymore. Yeah. All, all, all that. <laughs> Absolute disaster. Yeah, it, it gave you double the amount of work, I guess, because you could quickly then just write about how they were leaving. Exactly, right exactly. <laughs> um, if I could just pivot a little bit towards your, you know, your early career. I know you went to yeah. obviously Boston's a big baseball city. They love the yep. Red Sox there, but BU doesn't have they have a baseball team, I think, right? But just not very substantial. No, I mean there's a club team, but it's not really uh much of anything. They dumped baseball. I couldn't even tell you when long, long before I got there. And I graduated in 2014 and that was, you know, at BU hockey is the big sport. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I'm at ND and we, you know, when we get to, when we get to play any of those, you know, Boston teams, it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah. But You know, how do you get a start? I guess then if your, your college doesn't have a baseball team, was baseball always your thing or was it just sports reporting and you just happened to end up going down the baseball route? So baseball was always my favorite sport growing up. I grew up in Connecticut on the New York side. So most of the kids in school were New York fans. My dad is from Rhode Island, Massachusetts. So I grew up a Red Sox fan. The team specific fandom sort of fades away as you get into the media side of it. But that's that was my baseball beginning. Loving the Red Sox. That 04 team really solidified it. And so when it came time to go to college I had been writing for my high school newspaper you know I was a total newspaper journalism nerd um, editor-in-chief and taking journalism class and all that stuff which was awesome and when it came time to go to college I thought I guess I'll keep doing this I enjoy it I seem to be 
mildly good at it. And down, I was thinking about down the line, if I can make a living in a career watching and writing about sports generally, that's a great deal. If I could do that in baseball specifically, that's just unreal. So I went to BU, majored in journalism, signed, uh, you know, worked for the Daily Free Press, which is the student newspaper there, covered the hockey team a few years, and tried, even though my, my major was just journalism generally, I tailored my own experience to sports and whenever possible, baseball. So with my internships and things like that, even though there was no baseball team at BU, I, you know, Boston's a great sports city. There was plenty going on. And I was very fortunate in that I, you know, I got in part-time at the Boston Globe and they would give me some assignments, things like that. High schools, Boston Marathon colleges, pro games here and there. Um, and uh, the, the big, the big, first real big experience with with around baseball as a member of the media came in 2013. I was interning for weei.com, which is the website for the radio station. And they had, especially at the time, a very, a very robust like sports journalism operation of the writing on the website. And I interned there and they let me cover Red Sox games and I got my first reps first experience kind of learned the ropes um so that was a really key experience for me and then the summer after graduating i interned with mlb.com and covered the mets for them and uh that so those were my two two probably two best examples of trying to tailor my own experience my own career path toward baseball for a couple of years after graduating i was doing the freelance thing kind of piecing together a living while applying for a ton of jobs of all over the place geographically, all over the place as far as level of sports. Um, and then about two years after graduating, the South Florida Sun Sentinel hired me to cover the Merlins. And during that process, I went to Florida for the first time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it was off the races and I had a baseball beat writing job, which was absolutely unreal. And that led me eventually to where I am right now. I love it. Absolutely. It sounds like a blast. You're going through Boston to Miami. Absolutely. New York, three pretty different markets, but three yeah. markets to be in. <laughs> I love it. But yeah. again, sort of one of the follow-ups there is I bet those three teams, I know we actually had a Red Sox report on recently as well, and they're going through a pretty interesting offseason. I think the Marlins are already entering a pretty interesting offseason, firing yeah. Kenny. And then, then we've got our boys who are also going through a pretty interesting offseason i would call it what do you think and we don't want to hold you for too long but what is happening in mets land we saw six guys get non-tendered last year yeah. and daniel vogelbach being the big one and then obviously there's rumors of shohei and yamamoto and everyone in between so you do like a state of the mets rumors union what's up the state of the mets offseason essentially is they have a lot of work to do they have 28 guys on the 40-man roster which means they <laughs> get ready buckle buckle in because they're gonna they're gonna make a lot of moves and they might not be the Scherzer Verlander Lindor level moves of off seasons past but they know they have a lot of work to do the rotation they need at least two maybe three starters they need to build most of a bullpen because it was a mess last year and not a lot of the guys are coming back they have maybe 
three established guys, if you count Drew Smith, behind Diaz and Rayleigh. And then they really need a hitter. They are fortunate in that their defensive alignment right now has a lot of flexibility, thanks largely to Jeff McNeil, who can play basically anywhere. So if they want to add just a DH, they can do that. If they want to add an outfielder, they can do that. If they want to add a second or third baseman, they can do that. So they can take that offensive upgrade in one in any of a bunch of positions. And so there's a lot to come. Yamamoto, obviously, I think is the big name. Otani is the name this offseason. And I assume the Mets are going to be involved. I just don't really have high expectations that that will come to fruition. Can't rule them out. Even though the Mets have said that they're not going to be all in on free agency, Otani, of course, would be an exception to that, a worthwhile exception, and Yamamoto as well. I don't think they weren't really in that much on Aranola. I don't expect them to be in on Blake Snell, but they do need another top of the line, front of the rotation kind of arm, and Yamamoto could be that. The difference, of course, between him and Snell and Nola is that Yamamoto is only 25. So if you're going to give a pitcher a seven-year contract or so, you're going to give it to the 25-year-old and not the 31-year-old. Uh, and I say that as a 31-year-old. It kind of hurts me on the inside to say that, but I guess that's that's the reality. So the Mets have a lot of work to do. <laughs> David Stearns has his work cut out for him. I expect he'll be mildly good at least in 2024, but we really don't know what that team is going to look like yet. I like it, absolutely. So then the one question that we have, not to put beat reporters on the spotlight, but when we yeah. have on – we do get to say, would you like to shout out a name in free agency that you think the team will sign? And we'll say not Yamamoto or Otani, but it could be not Yamamoto or Otani. Someone might not be thinking of. Um, you know, I was, go- I was going through the list and it's tough because none of the names that I think they're going to go for are that sexy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's kind of like, uh, do they want... Teoscar Hernandez or Lourdes Goriel Jr. to play the outfield? Maybe. Do they want Jorge Soler to play, to be their DH? Could be. Those would be perfectly fine additions. They're not just huge splashes, nine-figure nine contracts. Um, I think if there was one, though, it might be uh, it might be Goriel. I think a two- or three-year deal for him to play the corner outfield would be kind of what this team needs right now. I like it. I forget who, but someone recently said Eduardo Escobar, and I kind of <laughs> was like, that's what we're going for this offseason. But... He's, he's a great guy. I'm not sure he's very good at baseball anymore, though. <laughs> oh, I love it. But we really appreciate you hopping on the podcast with us today. We had a blast getting to talk baseball with you. And sort of the last thing we like to do with all our guests, obviously, a month or so ago when we had David Lennon on the podcast, he concluded by saying you'd be a great next person to have on the show. Awesome. I'd like to keep the train moving and like to shout out someone else to go next. So I'm going to actually take an answer. I listened to your, your episode with Tim Britton and he suggested Alex Spear of the Boston Globe. And I wholeheartedly endorse that. Alex Spear is as smart and as good as a beat writer and baseball writer as there is in the industry. And I was very fortunate to learn under him when he was at WEI.com and I interned that summer in 2013. 
He's been, he was instrumental to me then, and he's been exceptionally kind to me in the years since. So I think it would be terrific if you had Alex on. I absolutely would go out of my way to listen to that. I love it. Absolutely. And also, thank you for listening to an episode you just revealed. That <laughs> Of course. I, I also listened to the Lennon one, Laura Albanese and Eugene Williams from Fox 5. So I've, I, anytime somebody's on, I'm like, oh, I want to I I hear about their career. <laughs> absolutely. No, it's such a blast. Because I guess we've always been doing this thing of hearing about people's journey while also talking about baseball in general. So yeah, two great, two, two fun things. Yeah, no, but hopefully you had a blast talking about all this with us, reminiscing about your days in Miami and Boston and now in New York, but really excited for what's going to happen next, either in your career as well as in the Mets baseball. But thanks so much for hopping on with us today. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you so much. So for Dylan Campione, Matt Potter and Dim Healy, until the next time, the side is retired.